children ages three through first grade can meet at the back for children's church. And if the rest of us would stand out of reverence for God's word, we'll read from 1 Samuel. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, um, every year we as a congregation um, come in this season uh, with a sense of anticipation entering again into, into the waiting and the longing that you call us to. And I pray for us now um, that the extraordinary reality of what you have done uh, would be made new to our hearts and that you would teach us what it is to be a people who wait with hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
The passage, in my opinion, that we just read um, is one of the most significant passages in the entire Old Testament. It's the earliest explicit promise that God gives to his people that he will send a king, a specific king. Every, every time the Bible from here on out will speak of this longing for a Messiah, of this son of David, it is all coming back to this moment. Here is one of the earliest explicit promises by God that Jesus will be sent to his people. It's, it's an incredibly important moment in not just the life of Israel, but in the history of the world. And we might ask, what is it that came, that brought this about? That God would decide in this moment to say, I'm going to send Jesus. Did David do something just extraordinary that God made, made God say, this is the time I will say it? No, our passage actually comes because of a mistake that David makes. This, these verses are, are God's loving correction of his king, moving him out of the confusion that he has into a posture of waiting and hope. And in this season of Advent, in this season in history where there is this sense of needing to wait, where we are seeking to hold on to hope, it seems appropriate that as we begin Advent, that we take a step back and we just look and we listen to this conversation between God and David. And as he seeks to form David, that we seek to understand that we also might be formed into people who wait well, people who hope. So our passage begins actually uh, with David being in a pretty uh, place of strength. It, it says that he enjoys rest from all his surrounding enemies. This is an extraordinary statement. I, I mean, if we were, if David were living in the modern day, business books would be written about David, about how he took this small, picked on country and brought it to a place of, of stability and strength so that the nations surrounding them feared Israel and wouldn't mess with Israel. They are now experiencing rest. They don't have to fight anymore. In fact, David is now, it says, hanging out in his own home. He has built a house for himself out of cedar. He has taken the time to get the contractors, to get the imported wood, the architect. He has the house he has a moment of rest he is doing well and in this moment of rest it occurs to him that this would be a good time for him to do something for God he, he says in verse 2 and if you don't have your bulletins open I encourage you to because we're just I just want to look at this passage with you as we work through it in verse 2, it says, The king said to Nathan the prophet, Nathan, a friend of his, someone who, who knows God, who speaks on God's behalf, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. I mean, you see it, right? He's, he is experiencing luxury, and the ark that symbolizes the presence of God is in a tent that's a few hundred years old. And, and David's like, this, this doesn't seem right. He, he, in this moment, is deciding he wants to build a house for God. There might be a little bit of kind of ego in this, that, you know, it will now be known as the Temple of David, but, but by and large, this seems like well-motivated thinking. He wants, he wants to serve God. He wants to do something for him. And, and he says that to Nathan, and, and Nathan thinks it's a good idea, too. Notice it says, Nathan uh, says, go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. 
it would seem like what he's doing is wise and good and honorable. And yet, what we see is God immediately intervening. That very night, it says he speaks to Nathan, and he tells Nathan to speak to David. And what he does is he seeks to correct David because David is wrong. And, and that correction really, the very heart of it can be summarized in two statements. The first one is at the end of verse 5 where he asks, or I guess it's a question here, would you build me a house to dwell in? And then on the other hand, on the end of verse 11, the contrast is, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Here is the pivot. You think you're going to build me a house? No, you don't understand, David. I'm going to build you a house. And when I consider both of those, first, this question, you think you are going to build me a house? If you listen, you can almost sense that God is putting David in his place. I don't know if you've ever seen movies or TV shows where this happens, but I have a couple times and it always kind of annoys me. Have you ever seen it like, you know, where, where there's a couple who's going out maybe on a first or a second date and the waiter comes and the guy, I mean, it's usually the guy, who will say, don't worry, I got this. She's going to have, and then he'll just like, you know, say, you know, filet mignon with a pepper sauce on the side of asparagus. Snap it. And, and he doesn't even decide to ask the girlfriend or the, the date what she wants. He just kind of assumes he knows what she really would like. And it's just so obnoxious. I mean, on one hand, it's clear that he just assumes he knows her completely, that he doesn't need to ask, you know, for example, whether or not she's a vegetarian. But even more than that, it's kind of this, this kind of moment of superiority, right? Where he's like, well, I'll, I'll take care of you. Don't worry about it. There's just something off about it. And I bring this up because if you think about it, there is a sense in which David actually, in this moment, is doing that. Notice what God says in response to David, what seems like this well-intentioned desire. Would you build me a house to dwell in? And then continuing on, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent from my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Of cedar? Do you hear what he's saying? He's like, I've never asked for this, and you haven't asked me whether I want a house. David, why are you assuming that's what I'm interested in? And then he goes on, and he actually points out to David something that David seems to have forgotten about himself. Therefore, thus says in verse 8, Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Do you hear what he's saying? I'm the one who does good things for you. Everything that you have came from me. Why in this moment do you think that I would need your help? See, what David is doing in this place of strength is, and I think it's subtle, I don't think he realizes it, but he is, in a sense, domesticating God in his heart. That word domesticate literally means to cause to belong to a house. And that's literally what David is trying to do, isn't it? But more than that, domesticating implies the idea of, of, of taming, 
right? Of, of, of making someone or something manageable and predictable so that it fits within your life. And, and this, too, is what David is doing. He assumes, he understands, he assumes that he's in the role now of God's caretaker, that he will make sure he does good things for God. And God says, David, it does not work that way. And it's worth pausing, I think, just for a moment to, to pull back because Scripture actually says this is not a David thing. This is a human thing, that, that there is a gravitational pull of sin that will always incline our hearts to shrink God and make Him manageable. Sin seeks to domesticate God in our hearts. And we see it throughout Scripture and. In the time where God's people are in the wilderness and Moses is away and they're confused, they say, we need to have a worship service. Let's make a beautiful statue of God and we can bow down to him and sacrifice him and won't that be so pleasing to God? And God's like, this is not how it works. You worship on my terms. They were seeking to domesticate and make him predictable. Hundreds of years after David, God says through Isaiah to his people, you are offering sacrifices, you are praying, but you're not listening to me. I don't need sacrifices. I own everything. What I want is a people who tremble at my word. You are seeking to domesticate me, and it doesn't work that way. It is a human sinful tendency that all of us share. It's subtle but real where we will in our minds and our hearts seek to make God safe. It almost always involves a certain degree of assumption that we understand God so that we don't need really to listen to him anymore because we already know what he wants, because we already know who he is. And it moves from there to a kind of reducing of our relationship with God so that it's smaller and simpler. It can be reduced in the sense that we keep him in certain areas, the spiritual areas of life. Or it can be smaller in terms of us just making our relationship with God transactional, where we seek to do good things for God to keep him happy, and we hope he'll do good things for us. The key is, however we do it, we find a way that God becomes more predictable, Someone who fits into our way of th seeing things in the same way that we see with David choosing not to listen, with David choosing to think that he is God's caretaker. And the problem with this is not only is it, is it just dangerous, but it's an absolute lie. There are a number of times in the Bible where where people are enabled to meet God face to face. Although scripture usually tells us that it's not even really directly meeting God. It's like almost meeting like a shadow of God. But every time people meet God, let me tell you what doesn't happen. People don't just kind of go, oh yeah, I know you. Come on in. Can I get you a chair? Can I get you something to drink? No, whenever people come face to face with God, they are undone. When, when God appears to Israel at Mount Sinai with the thunder and with the lightning and the earthquakes and the sound of trumpet, the people say, please have him stop speaking to us. If he speaks anymore, we will die. When Isaiah has this vision where he sees God, God himself in the temple with a robe filling in this high throne, Isaiah falls down and he says, woe to me, I am undone. I'm about to fall apart. When when John, the, the Apostle John, sees the risen 
Jesus, his eyes flaming like fire, his voice like the sound of rushing waters, he falls down before him as if dead because each of these situations they recognize that, that God is anything but tame. He is mysterious, he is transcendent, he is extraordinary, and I guarantee that if we were to see God right now in this moment face to face, if he were to appear before us right now, we would do the same. God does not fit into some narrow box. God is not someone that we already understand. He is is wild. He is mysterious. He is extraordinary. And, And God needs David to understand this. And he needs us to understand this because only as we come to the place of recognizing how much greater God is than we are, Are we ready to begin to hear God's promises of astonishing grace? That's that's the second corrective that we see God bringing to David in these verses. As As we mentioned before, he starts with, Would you build me a house? But then he says here, I will build you a house. He's saying, you have it upside down. You think that you're the one who serves me and I need your help. That's wrong. I'm the one who helps. I'm the one who gives. My intent is to pour my grace upon you. He, he says, I will build you a house. And, and it might be a little confusing to David at the moment. Because, you know, David already has a house, right? He's got this nice cedar house. But, but here's the corrective. God is saying, you think you have what you need, and I want to give you something far, far greater. I'm going to give you a dynasty. I'm going to give you a kingdom unlike any kingdom the world has ever seen. And I'm going to do it through one of your descendants. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled... And you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. You know what's being talked about here, right? A thousand BC is when this is happening. And God is saying that a son, a descendants, a great, 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 great grandson will come and he will establish a kingdom that will be glorious. God here is promising David Jesus. Now there is no way I think David has even even just a sliver of understanding of exactly what God is saying here, but God at least specifies. He says, here are some of the things that you can expect will take place when I pour out my goodness upon you. You can expect he will give an astonishing kind of rest. So, so in, you know, in verse 10, it says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them So that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. And skipping a little bit ahead. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Which I wonder, again, if that would have confused David. Because as we already saw at the very beginning, David is enjoying rest from his surrounding enemies. And Israel already had a place. But God's like, no, 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 no. I've barely started. Right now, 
they're enjoying rest from their surrounding enemies, from the Philistines, from Tyre and Sidon, from these other places, and that's good. But notice what God says is, and I will give you rest from all your enemies, not just the ones that surround you, but the ones that plague you even more deeply. I don't think David could even begin to comprehend what God is speaking of here, but the New Testament tells us that we come to understand that our enemies are not ultimately flesh and blood, but our, but our enemies are, are the evil that plagues within us, causing us to hurt others and causing others to hurt us. The, the deepest enemies that we face include the disorder of this world, whether we're talking about the disorder of something as small as a virus or as enormous as a hurricane. The, the enemies that we face, the final enemy is death itself. And, and what God is saying is through this son of David, your people will have rest from all of this. Your people will be made whole. The wolf will lie down with a lamb. And there will be no more violence or death. I, through this son, will give a, astonishing rest. And what's more, when God speaks of what's going to happen through the Son, he speaks of how there will be an astonishing relationship as well. You might have noticed at the very beginning the way that God speaks of David, like verse 5, is go and tell my servants, David. That word servant in this context is actually an honoring of David. David is my servant. David has this unusually close relationship with God. You know, we see that in the Psalms. He's described elsewhere as a man after God's own heart. And and this is important because in the day of the kings, wherever the king's relationship with God was, so also were the relationship of the people. He, in many ways, acted as this connection point. So because David had this intimate relationship with God, Israel was close to God. And yet God says, that's how things are right now. You are my servant, and that's good. But notice how he describes this person who's going to be establishing the throne I will be verse to him a father and he shall be to me a son not just a servant but but your descendant David I, he, he will be a son to me and I will love him as a father he will honor me as a son and because of this intimate connection between him and me, God's people will experience it. It says, this one is the one who will build a house for my name. This one who is your great, 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 great grandson will establish a connection between me and them unlike the world has ever seen before. Again, there is no way David could understand what he's talking about, about how a time will come where sin will no longer stand between God and humanity. What's more, where God's very own spirit would dwell within each person who trusts in Jesus, who, the spirit who enables our hearts to cry out to God and call him Father. That is an intimacy unlike anything David could have imagined. God says this king will bring an extraordinary, an astonishing relationship. And God also says this king will bring about permanence. Verse 15, my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. If you think about human history, every 
Every story of triumph always is followed by a story of failure. Nothing lasts, but this will, God says. This king will be the king of kings. He'll be the Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever. And there will never be a time where the enemies have the upper hand. This kingdom will last. It will be permanent. Do you see what is happening here? David has this small, small vision where his hope is basically things are about as good as they're going to be, but what I'd like to do is maybe make a a nice house for God to maybe kind of burnish my name and do something good for God. And God's like, David, you're thinking way, way, way too small. You have this domesticated view of me, and that means you have a small view of my grace and my promises, and what I want to do is something so much greater than you can possibly imagine. And that should give us pause, or it should cause us to think a little bit about, about how we expect God to be. Let me, let me put it this way. Um, think for a moment about where your hopes are. What, what, do, you, what do you long for? What, what do you pray for? What, what, as you look forward in life, what, what do you hope to see? Now let me ask you this, when you come to the very end of your life and, and you see what God has done for you, do you think you will be disappointed because it is less than what you hoped? Or do you think it will be far better than even what you hoped? Before you answer that question, just remember this. David's greatest ambition and longing was to see a house be made for God, and God says, I'm going to give you my eternal son who will be savior of the world. And if David is just, if what God does for David far outstrips his expectations, and he knows God intimately, Can't we assume that the same will happen for us, that God, who is able to do unimaginably more than all we can ask or imagine, who is more committed to your well-being and your good than you are, can't we just assume that we will be surprised, that whatever God does for us will surpass our grandest expectations, and when we see what he has done, we will realize that he again and again astonishes us with his grace. This also is what we see. When we see how much bigger God's plan is than what David has in mind, we should recognize that is how God is towards us as well. Now there's one other thing that we should notice as we're just kind of like listening in on this conversation, and that is that David also is warned by God of a kind of complexity. He, God really sets his expectations and people after him to recognize that this pathway to seeing his promises being fulfilled will at times be confusing. So there is a complexity, and maybe you picked up on this when when Dave was reading this passage. When God is speaking about David's descendants, he is ultimately speaking of Jesus. Jesus is the complete fulfillment of this. But he's also talking about a process You know, there is more than one descendant of David. There is a line, one person coming after another and after another. And God anticipates that the journey in some ways towards Jesus will be rocky. Notice he says, uh, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. Verse 15, when he 
commits iniquity. And if you know anything about David's descendants, you'll know that happens a lot. It starts with, with Solomon, with bringing idols into Jerusalem, and it just kind of goes downhill from there. There are many different ways that the descendants of David fail God and commit iniquity. And God says, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. Now think of what that's saying. The rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men means I, I will make him lose. Lose to enemy armies. And, and just this one sentence, God is anticipating and, and, and encouraging David and others to understand that the way forward is going to involve what we'll come to find out is a thousand years of failure. I mean, it starts, as I said, with Solomon. Soon after Solomon, the kingdom gets divided in pieces, and then later on, the northern kingdom gets destroyed, and then later on, hundreds of years later, the, new, the Jerusalem gets exiled, the temple gets ruined, the Davidic line seems to no longer be a king. A thousand years of failure, where a thousand years, keep on, th things keep on not working the way they are. Things keep on being discouraging. Yes, there are these occasional high points, these moments where it looks like God is doing what he said he was, and then things just get worse. Can you imagine what it would be like in a thousand years, having heard this promise that God gave to David, and, and waiting and longing to be astonished by God's grace, and only to see failure after failure, it would have seemed completely, utterly bewildering. How in the world could God fulfill his promises when David's not even reigning on the throne and his sons seem to be removed and, and the temple is ruined and there's nothing left? And yet God says, long before it happens, you should be ready for this. You, will be, you should be ready for times where I will have to discipline, where I will be working through this, but you need to recognize that even this, this is part of my promise. This is part of the way that I will bring these things about. And, and we should be ready too. What this, what this suggests to us is that as we are people who wait and we are people who are waiting for God to do what he says he will do, that there will be times where it will seem utterly unlikely that it could possibly happen. Or if we try to read the signs around us, it will seem like everything is going in the wrong direction. In fact, this might be one such time for us. We hear that God will build his kingdom through his church, and yet we see the church seeming to fall apart throughout the world, or at least throughout America. We, 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 we pray and believe in the Holy Spirit, and yet it seems like we feel corruption all around us. We, we know that God is spreading the gospel, and yet it's so hard to see, and it seems like what God is saying will happen is just so far from reality, and God says you should expect that. And we should, because if we follow a God who is so extraordinary and so confusing and so mysterious, whose promises of grace are so astonishingly beyond what we can comprehend, we should expect to be confused along the way. But that confusion in no way negates the reality that God will do what he says. And if we want any, any evidence of 
of this, that God is so unpredictable and so confusing and yet so faithful, we just need to recognize all of the fulfillment of these promises comes by God himself humbling himself to become a baby because he is pursuing our happiness in him. There is no way anyone could ever have anticipated that. But what we see is God's faithfulness. A few hundred years into this thousand years of waiting, God gives another one of his servants who is waiting, Isaiah, just a little bit more of a glimpse of what he was promising to David, where he writes, To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. As, as, as a people who are waiting and learning to hope, I invite us to spend some time praying. Throughout Advent, what we're going to be doing is um, using a shared community confession of sin where we together seek to prepare our hearts, to turn our hearts in waiting. And so what we'll do is we'll, uh, um, we will do this together. I will start and then with the print is bold, if you could join. And, and midway through, we'll have a chance of just kind of silently confessing before God. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, your Son is our truest hope, worthy of our undivided faith. He is the source of our deepest joy, and in him alone do we have peace together. Yet we confess that we so often look elsewhere for these things. We place our hope in the promises of this world and we trust the things we feel we can control. We seek satisfaction and peace in the pleasures and comforts of the moment. We confess to you our sinful pride. 